So one of my favorite businesses was a portable toilet rental company that I tried to buy 2015, right? Nobody's pooping less. <laughs> Nobody's been to an event where there were too, too many uh, porta potties. Like, oh my gosh, man, there's too many beautiful porta potties here. Um, so I put all that under the umbrella of waste because, you know, even if we sit in our houses and play on Metaverse, we're going to be eating, you know, cookies and, and pies and consuming stuff, and that's got to go somewhere. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of The Lewis and Kyle Show. Welcome back if you are a longtime listener, and welcome if this is your first time staying with us. The Lewis and Kyle Show, it's an interview podcast. We bring on world-class thinkers and subject matter experts in a variety of subjects. There's a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of investors, a lot of authors, a whole lot more. It's a win-win. Hopefully everyone's smarter for being here, and I hope that you feel that way at the end of this conversation. Today, we have the absolute pleasure of interviewing Elliot Holland. Elliot is the founder of a company called Guardian Due Diligence. What they do, they help people who are trying to buy businesses. To get more specific, they provide quality of earnings reports for self-funded searchers. This conversation covers all of your questions about buying businesses and the questions you should be asking in the process to make sure you're not making a big mistake or passing up on a good opportunity. We also discover how Elliot created his practice consulting people on this process in the first place and ask a whole bunch of other questions about his life story, such as why it was useful to go to Harvard Business School, or really the question was how useful was it? And uh, we'll talk about that towards the end. That's all I have to say for this conversation before I switch over to it. So I'm going to switch over to it. Enjoy. Elliot, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. Uh, so our first question is around deal flow. You know, you are sort of the person after the the buyer finds a deal that they'll go, you'll go in with them and do the due diligence on a deal that they've already found. But how um, do you mm -hmm. source um, deals for buying new businesses or not buy, buying old businesses, I guess? No, great question. So my background for almost 10 years, I was in private equity and independent business buying. So I speak from that language. I don't do deal sourcing currently, but I can sort of point people in the right direction. So the first place you want to go is businesses that you know. So whatever city you're in, whatever place you're going, whatever you know, local business, your parents know somebody who owns it. If you can find something in that network, that's best. If you can't, there are online databases of businesses for sale. Um, the kind of McDonald's of them is uh, Biz Buy Sell, B-I-Z-B-U-Y-S-E-L-L. Now, you may be frustrated with the quality, but not the volume. So you go there, you know, in a week you'll have 20 more sites like that. You'll know some brokers, off you go. And I think the whole trick to deal flow is just numbers. Whatever number you think you need to make a good decision on a deal, probably multiply that times three or five. You really have to get good at getting volume in your funnel to pick something that's that's good. Yeah. I think that's great. This industry, you know, you've played every piece of it in the past, right? You were the person buying these businesses. You were on like a more corporate side of things, helping other people do it in a less structured, less entrepreneurial environment. So what is it about the kind of current pieces you've chosen not to do and chosen to do that, you know, how do you make that decision? That's like the piece of this that you're best at, that's most fun for you and the pieces you let everyone else do for themselves. I think a lot of it is just matching up what the, what the market needs and what I enjoy. So to really do diligence well, you really have to dig like you got to, you know, in sewers, under rugs, you, you really got to get deep and dirty. And so to do it the best way, I couldn't do it and my team couldn't do it if we weren't enjoying it. So what I said is, look, there's a 
there's a, a, a very extensive deal process. And, you know, the Stanford search fund, you know, information will get you a lot of it. You can go to the Harvard Business Review and they have a how to buy a small business. So you sort of understand what the process is. But the hardest part, particularly for first-time buyers, and that's 90-plus percent of my clients, is how do you manage through the nuanced process? And the most difficult part of that is due diligence. Why? Very few of my clients are accountants. They're not CPAs. They may have done corporate finance or even like $100 million deals. When you look at $2 million deals, everything is messy, screwy, um, not to standard. So people lose their stuff really quickly when they're used to things in good order. So I knew that was the hardest part. So if I can deliver that to the market, I knew I had an opportunity because I knew the number of buyers of new businesses was increasing with um, entrepreneurship through acquisition going major at all the top business schools with Walker Darbo's book, Buy Then Build. So I saw a growing market. I saw a need. I also knew the solutions in the market for diligence were not sufficient at all for a first-time buyer. So the typical solution is um, a CPA firm doing a quality of earnings, and those are great reports, don't get me wrong. And I deliver one as well, but theirs are sort of very specific to what profit did the company make last year and what working capital do you need in the business. My reports have all the information theirs have, but add the pieces that first-time buyers need, which a lot of it is sort of is the business worth what you're paying for it, and what are the things that are going to change when a new person takes over that might make the next year's cash flow, the one that you're actually buying, different than historical so you don't get caught up in thinking that everything that happened before you bought the business will continue under your ownership. Yeah, I think that's a good fallacy in every financialized industry, right? It's just like, well, it happened before, so it's going to happen again. I think this is especially true, and you mentioned this in that interview with Walker, right? That this is a very inefficient market, right? If it was efficient, you wouldn't have that value add from like being the one person who's willing to take the time and the nuance to find you know, the mom and pop who just pay for things on a personal card because whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, so yeah, I didn't even you. I didn't even think about the yeah. value add for um, these smaller deals with your due diligence um, service being much greater than like a public company, obviously, or um, even a larger private company who has some like SEC rules that they have to follow. When it's a small business that's run by an individual, you know, their accounting, their balance sheet, their income statement. It's not perfect. It doesn't have to be perfect. And so the value that you add by going in and being like a sleuth or discovering like all of the different information that underlies that balance sheet and an income statement is actually extremely valuable, probably more so than, you know, if they have an internal audit board and all of these different um, internal functions for making sure that their accounting is correct. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I'm working for, you know, hustlers, entrepreneurs, people who are saying, hey, I'm working a job, but I want to go buy a million-dollar-plus business and put a personal guarantee um, on an SBA 7A loan, right? So those folks are not only managing a very difficult buying process, but they may be tied up 9 to 5 doing a full-time job. So when I was working in private equity, due diligence was a full-time job. So now you have two full-time jobs at the same time. So there's both sort of people not knowing what to do, but there's also knowing what to do, but not mm -hmm. having the time, the energy, the specificity to do it efficiently. And so when, when clients are trying to take in all this data to make a decision, like buy the business or don't, um, 
there's a lot more to it than just here's the last year's profit. Right. Yeah. And I know one of your sort of quips is like, leave the clipboard at home. Like don't bring such an academic, um, you know, persona or, or character to these meetings with the, the sellers of the business, because that'll turn them off. Uh, you know, like you, you want to be doing deals jokingly and that's like how things end up better. Um, but my question is like, what are the three or five questions, um, or bullet points that you have to hit no matter what in order to um, progress or move forward in that maybe first or second meeting with a seller? Sure. So I will, I will change the question Please a do. bit so it can be, I think more accurate. The, the better question would be what are the things you need to finish before you get a deal done? And I actually have a page on my website that, that goes through it, and we'll probably link that in the show notes. But um, the top three or five. Um, so, Kyle, do you trust the seller to be reasonably honest? The reason that's so important, and it's not a question, right, but it's, it's a feel you have to get through diligence. If you believe that the seller is being malicious or fraudulent or low integrity, there's too many things he or she knows that you don't to take on a million-dollar risk. Now, there's no Excel sheet that's going to get you to do you trust the seller, but you got to sort of get there one way or the other. The second thing, um, are the financials solid? And in my world, it's sort of plus or minus, call it 5%, because you're never going to get validation that everything is right. But typically, the answer to that is a proof of cash, which is part of my quality of earnings report, because that leverages the bank statements to recreate the financials you and I know the bank is too conservative to play around with stuff. You can't walk in with a buck and say, hey, but tell Lewis and Kyle that it's 500 bucks. So you rebuild it using a very conservative mechanism, and now you have sort of confirmation without BS. Third thing would just be that you can run the business without the seller, and that's one of the things that I have on my website that's tough for first-time buyers, but oftentimes the special relationships the seller has with clients special relationships the seller has with employees and special information that the seller has in their head that you may or may not be able to extract. And so if you haven't spent enough time with the seller to understand what they have to do on a weekly, monthly basis to run the business and figure out how you can replicate it, you're in big trouble. And I think those are the top three. Like, do you trust the seller? Are the numbers solid? And can you run the thing when the seller's gone? Yeah. Anything more than that, you can uh, figure it eventually. I w yeah, and, and everything is priority, right? So one of the things about diligence is you're attacking the biggest issue, the one most likely to kill your deal every day of the process. So from letter of intent signed to deal closing, which is 90 to 100 days, um, each day you're tackling the most important thing. So most folks start with are the financial solid, right? Um, the reason being is because if the financials are not solid, there's no need for me to hire a lawyer to negotiate a purchase agreement that I'm not going to go through, right? If I don't figure out the operations, right, then there's no need for me to spend all that time and energy and money with a lawyer. So now after the financials, I'm trying to figure out the operations. How can I take the reins? How can I grow? Who's staying with the business that has enough knowledge? And then as you push through it, now it's like more of the nuanced finite things. Like, do I trust the seller? Does something sniff like it's funny? Um, do I like this? Do I like that? Do I want to adjust? But each and every day, you're tackling the biggest issue. And so through the process, your biggest challenge changes so many times. 
that makes sense. Uh, one question I have is what changes have you seen in the past two years? The past two years since Kyle and I have started the show, right, have been a very dramatic two years of uh, global change. So what are some kind of new categories of, you know, popularity or just new inventory kind of supply demand shifts in the business you look at as a result of kind of huge macro changes to like the fabric of society, like pandemic, um, PPP loans from like a financial perspective and potentially this is a little, little fresh, but like also geopolitical conflict. No, those are great questions. So it's been wild. So I'll start with like COVID. So the funniest way to describe this is, um, so typically buyers value a business as a multiple of EBITDA earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization. I use the word profit interchangeably with that. They're very close. Um, what happened in COVID is we started looking at EBITDA, uh, EBITDA plus a COVID. So earnings before, uh, uh, interest tax, depreciation, amortization, and COVID. And so now people were saying, hey, let's look at my business like COVID never happened. So let's look at 2019 and pay a multiple of that, even though my business is down. This isn't going to sustain. I don't know when it's coming back, but I want full price off of my last sort of fully performing year. So that was wild and negotiating that. It's also a seller's market, Luis. So right now, the sellers are getting the terms they want you know, on sort of fair trades or sort of contentious situations. So the multiples are higher. Um, the conditions that the seller can put into place are more um, intrusive. Sellers who kind of back away from processes because they're tough or people are being jerks is happening more often. So seller's market. Um, then you have sort of the geopolitical stuff happening, and now people are cautionary about what is the impact of whatever the geopolitical stuff happening on acquisitions I'm making today and that I need to pay today. So it's been very interesting getting through all of that. And then plus the PPP stuff was weird because every broker in America or almost every broker in America wanted to try to sneak the PPP loan in as sustainable revenue and sustainable profit. And so picking that out each and every time, and kind of playing like where they hide the the surprise has been interesting. Also, the PPP loan doesn't show up as PPP loan on the balance sheet. You know, it's loan from Bank of America, loan from JP Chase. And so understanding that there's more than likely a PPP loan in the business is a key part of walking through diligence. Yeah. So my background professionally, limited as it is, uh, has been in the Bitcoin industry. And one thing we hyper-focus on is inflation. What's been the impact on that? Because I know it kind of does different things to different people, alters you know your relationship with debt, maybe some risk tolerance, maybe just, I mean, your whole investing paradigm. So what's been the effects of that in the past year, you know, couple of years? So inflation is one of those macro things that you can't change. And, and, and here's the point of view, I think, for business buying professionals that may be different than asset managers. So... Inflation is going to impact everyone, but when you're making an investment that you think can do 25%, 50% ROI, you, you're you sort of saying even if inflation gets to something like 10 or 15%, which, you know, is is crazy for the U.S. economy, not impossible, but crazy, even if it gets to that level, my return still makes sense. 
And so I think what's happening is people are saying, that's one of the things I'm going to have to contend with, but I can't stop making decisions because of it. And that's how I think a lot of buyers are handling it. Um, but like in more pure financial like decision-making, I, I do think you have to sort of think about some of these decisions differently. Yeah, I think, you know, in the field in which you are operating, like inflation just means that these businesses cost more. And so if you if you buy them now or two years ago, you've probably made a killing because, um, you know, investors are, are valuing each dollar of, of operating uh, income more and more. And so, um, like, the multiples are just going to be in, insane. And, you know, here's a question that I want to field to you. So I, I worked uh, my professional limited capacity as well uh, last summer for a, a private equity real estate firm. And one thing that I kept coming back to is like over the last 50 years, you know, any deal that came across um, the table of a real estate investor, they should have bought pretty much like they should have no matter what the purchase price was, they would have made money if they were throwing darts at a board. And um, my question to them is like, why is that not true today? And I know you're not in the in the real estate sector. Um, I'm sure you have done some real estate stuff in the past, but I feel like that's pretty much true for operating businesses as well. Um, what would you say to like, how, how, why can't we, why can we not operate under the assumption that that's true today? No, amazing question. So I'm going to age myself a little bit, but we got to go here. Right. So, um, being a little bit more of an OG in this, right. So I started my professional career before the downturn in mm -hmm. 2008 and so um, everybody should have bought real estate 2006 and 2007, right? It was the same sort of environment. And everybody lost their behind in 2008 if they were holding real estate. And so the reason you can't just do it in perpetuity is because assets, the value goes up and goes down. And if you buy it expecting the value to go up and not having a real thesis for getting a return, mm -hmm if the market goes down or being able to improve the asset to give yourself some protection, you're betting that no downturn occurs. And with all the geopolitical stuff, all the inflation, the state of the U S economy relative to other global economies, you have to be careful. But I'll tell you, Kyle, everybody was saying that in 2006 and seven. Um, but then I started business school at Harvard with a bunch of guys that got pushed out of Bear Stearns and Lehman brothers because those bets didn't work yeah. out. Right. And certain industries went completely under. So, what I would say is there's always there's always sort of a short-term, fancy, easy strategy that sounds really cool and people on Twitter and Instagram talk about it. But when you talk to investors that have been in this game for a long time, they'll just tell you you're buying assets where the value goes up and it goes down. And you can't predict um, when. You know, you'd be foolish over long periods of time. So... Um, and hindsight's twenty twenty as well. You know, some people saw the housing stuff turning bad in 2007 and were able to sell some assets. Some people saw it was going bad, put assets up for sale. The process to get them sold didn't happen, and they were still holding them with the for sale sign. So I would just caution people to be careful. I think that's also why you need to have the counsel of somebody who may be a bit older and been through a couple of more cycles to kind of tell you like, Hey, this sounds like 2006, bro. And let me tell you about some bankrupt right. friends I have 
who were holding too much real estate then. Yeah, I think that's excellent wisdom that is only earned through experience. And that's something that, uh, you know, definitely lacking in. So I appreciate the, the honest response. Um, yeah, you're not just holding it at the beginning and the end. You got to be able to yeah. hold it the whole way through. You know, I just am I'm really attracted to that like long term 30 year hold buy and never sell uh, mentality. And if, and I just believe fundamentally that multifamily real estate is going to be worth more in 30 years than it is today or the land will at least, you know, and so um, that's sort of where I'm coming from there. But I, I want to get back to to your business. But Kyle, let me just interject because I don't want to caution people without telling uh-huh. them that there's probably some upside in that too. Holding period is a big piece of it. So a real estate private equity firm, their hold period, I, my understanding is a short. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And and yeah, you're right. So I'm thinking. So for you right, as an individual exactly. buyer, you know, like I'm doing some rehab deals in Atlanta and I'm not worried about the price fluctuation because I plan on holding it for 30 mm-hmm. years. If you're betting on stocks today, you know, you don't have to worry as much if you have a 30 year hold period. If your hold period is two years plus or minus, now you have to really start thinking about, will I be holding an asset in a deflated economy when everybody was rah-rahing about mm-hmm. it now? I felt like a superstar today, and I'm a poor man on the street with a can looking for money in two years. So holding periods of long periods of time get you out of short-term fluctuations in the market. Right. Yeah. And- you're right. The the real estate private equity firm is like, you know, seven year hold period usually, or they'll only model out to 10 years because it's like, you can't guess outside of that. Um, but I want to come back to your business. So one question that I have is about um, the employees of that business once you've bought it and how to retain, uh, retain employees, incentivize employees and keep company culture. Sure. So I say this a lot. You got to, you know, shut the laptop, turn the phone off and and go meet people. Right. Um, And one of the things that I think, you know, my generation, your guys' generation is poor at is like hand to hand combat communication. You know, something that's longer than a tweet or a two minute email or a five minute conversation. Like, how do you spend a day with a person? How do you spend two days with people? And so I think. The way that you do that is you invest in the people. I think you invest in the leaders because they're going to manage and and run the business. They hold more information. But if you're smart, you also spend a lot of time with the person, people who are touching your customers, which may be sales, but may be service like in an HPSC company. And then you want to go find the nastiest, dirtiest, most painful job in the company and go make sure you, you recognize that piece of it, too. I think there's always financial incentives that you can put in front of people. But um, I just got back from a, a conference in Orlando with a bunch of sort of small and medium business acquirers. And they spent a lot of time on that question, Kyle. And a lot of it was about investing real time to understand who the folks are, what motivates them, convincing them that it's a better place to work than it was before. Being a person of your word, those first few promises you make, those first few changes that you make are going to be the way that those people define you. And I think another thing people need to do after they shut the laptop, after they put the phone down, is get out of your own head. I think people always negotiate for my position, my position, this is reasonable, somebody else got it. Like, forget all of that. Go think about the operator. Go think about the controller. Go think about the person running that truck. What are their incentives? 
What's it like to make the money they make? What are the trade-offs they're making every day? What would be a home run for them? And I think a big piece of it is getting out of your own head, getting in, trying to, and, and not like psychologically, but sort of how do you, how do you best speak to someone who may not have the same professional experience you have, but still connect with them? I think people miss that. Culture is keeping the main people, right? You, 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 you change the culture significantly um, when you get rid of key people. And so that cuts both ways. If you want to keep the same culture, then you're probably going to try your best to keep the management team. If you want to change the culture, one impetus and thing you can do to do it significantly is change um, someone at the top. Have you ventured into the online world or do you not play that game? Like online only businesses. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in it, baby. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in it. I mean, probably 30% of my deals last year were online. Um, Amazon FBA was huge. Uh, e-commerce was huge. So um, we do those deals too. Very cool. Do you think for, you know, like a young person or really, I say young in terms of experience, not in terms of age, right? So maybe who's just like ambitious and hasn't had that C-suite job before they want to do this. You're like, I'm just going to do it anyway, right? I'm smart. I'm nice to people. I can, I'm organized. I can figure this out. Do you have a recommended sure. outlet, you know, online world, offline world for that situation? What are some like differences, benefits, et cetera, in that, in that situation? My life and entrepreneurial experience has taught me um, people are real dangerous in a positive way, right? They're, they're, they're most likely to sort of reach beast mode at the intersection of what they know and what they like. That's where you're going to kick butt. That's where you're going to stay up late. That's where you're going to get up early. That's when you're going to network, when it's painful, all of that. So what I would say is, and I think you were sort of asking about industry and then online, offline. I think you need to sort of figure out, are you an online digital marketing, SaaS, technology-based person that wants to manage that kind of workforce and feels comfortable with that kind of risk um, and paying those kind of prices, right? Or are you more of like a blue-collar um traditional businesses, business models that don't change much over time, um, businesses that may have a slightly smaller multiple or purchase price. And I think where people get really good outcomes is combining sort of the stuff that they know with stuff that they like. Um, and that's where I would start. And once you sort of, and that doesn't happen in six weeks, in six months, because like you almost have to see enough deals to really understand what's in and what's out but as you get to that point pick something you like and you're good at so if i told you that you could only buy businesses in one industry for the rest of your life which industry would it be for you oh either waste management or water why i knew that was coming so um, do you curse? You can on curse all you want. Let it rip. Um, people are always buying shit, right? People are always using shit um, every single day, right? So one of my favorite businesses was a portable toilet rental company that I tried to buy 2015, right? Nobody's pooping less. <laughs> Nobody's been to an event where there were too, too many uh, porta potties. Like, oh my gosh, man, there's too many beautiful porta potties here. Um, so I put all that under the umbrella of waste because, you know, even if we sit in our houses and play on Metaverse, we're going to be eating, you know, cookies and, and pies and consuming stuff. And that's got to go somewhere. 
uh, water just because as the geopolitical stuff gets crazy, as urban sprawl and real estate keep pushing, you know, we can live longer without food than we can without water. And a lot of smart long-term investors, because that's what you asked, are buying up water. And I, I understand why. It's the substance of existence, right? If, if water becomes short, particularly with, like, climate change and whatnot, um, the first resource you're going to want is water. Imagine, imagine the pricing of a water bottle if, if water ever became short. Yeah, I th- so if I was betting on mm-hmm. – and I gave you two, but, like, those are the two that if I was betting 30 years and I'd have to worry about, like – upmarket, downmarket, total disposition of companies, those are the two that I would bet. Yeah, I think Michael Burry uh, in the, at the end of the big short, it's like he don't, he's only playing in one market now and it's water or something like that. There you go. You know, it used to be uh, rich folks would buy uh, huge plots of like timber or like huge ranches, right? And there's some tax benefits to some of those things, but I, I, I see a lot of the smarter, richer folks going after water. Mm-hmm. You have a story on your website about helping a customer buy a tank business. What can you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, so first off, you got to get yourself like kind of acclimated. So uh, middle of Oklahoma, you fly into Oklahoma City, you drive two hours in the middle of nowhere. That's where the business is. Um, it looks like uh, no country for old men, like dusty uh, crazy stuff and everything in the in the facility is dirty, but the company made these beautiful tanks that amazing billion dollar companies like Continental Resources used to hold and transport natural gas. Right, so um, it was two sellers getting up in age, um, looking to sell the business. I helped my client um, take a look at the company, evaluate the talent. the The big resource in that company um, are welders, which are kind of half technician, half artist. So you really got to get to know those guys. And the biggest thing through diligence on that deal was that the two sellers had very different incentives for selling and had very different levels in the business. And so part of what I had to help my client realize is that, you know, seller one may get back to you in, in 10 hours. Seller two might take four days. That's not a red flag. That's just different motivation. And then also the business had risk around oil price. And so I had to advise my client that the multiple that they paid needed to be commiserate with their downside considerations of oil price and natural gas price. Because you can't buy, to get an ROI, you can't buy at a peak um, and be concerned about that price fluctuating. So that deal was uh, one of my more favorite ones just because um, my client was like a New York city slicker type. And so getting them out to the middle of Oklahoma and, you know, forcing them to kind of take off all that fancy talk and put on some blue-collar clothes, which, you know, is not like a super fancy thing. It's a people thing, but that was, that was, a, that was a fun deal. What's your uh, biggest home run deal? So I bought um, some tow trucking companies um, back when I was an independent buyer. And the thing about tow trucking companies is if you think about trucking distribution generally, it's a 10 to at the max 20%, sometimes running lower than that EBITDA margin business, right? So you got trucks, you're moving stuff point A to point B, you put drivers in them, you're going to make 10, 12% EBITDA margins, pretty thin. But these trucks could make 
30% margins. And the reason why is if you can fully utilize your towing fleet and size it right for a particular area, you're pulling cars out of parking lots where they can't park. You're pulling cars out of high-rise apartments. You're pulling cars that crashed on the side of the road. There's, there's not great alternatives. People are, don't want to wait. Um, when you pull them from parking lots, there's no real argument. You took somebody's asset. And so the same truck, not different trucks, but sort of the truck entity is the thing you're buying, is now making like 20 or 30% margins. So the biggest home run deal was recognizing that and then buying a platform business and then doing a bunch of add-ons to get the EBITDA up um, and then refinancing to, to get cash mm. out. I think we'll transition now to bonus around a couple of rapid fire questions, then we'll wrap things up. My first question for you. Okay. Where'd it go? It's right here. But uh, what are a couple things? It could just be one thing, but if a couple come to mind, either one's fine, that you would have started much earlier as an independent operator or an independent investor? I would have bought S&P 500 index funds every year since I had money. Um, and the reason I say that is it doesn't take a lot of thinking. And I would have made a lot of money. Like everything else that I would say takes time and energy. And so with people who are short of those resources, as soon as you have some cash, you know, even if it's like 100 bucks, just put it in an S&P 500 index fund. What was your biggest takeaway from Harvard Business School? Would you say now, years later? Man. Play your own ball. Um, which is sort of esoteric, but when I got to Harvard, for most people, you can do almost anything coming out of Harvard Business School. Technology, you know, now Bitcoin, uh, 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 real estate, uh, everybody is looking to hire you. And with all of those people coming to recruit, it can be sexy, you know, talking to uh, Goldman Sachs, talking to McKinsey, talking to Blackstone, talking to BlackRock, talking to whoever. And by diluting your efforts, you get beat by somebody who said, I only want to do private equity in the middle market. And so their 10 dinners, their 10 whatever was spent doing that. And the reason that lesson is so um, meaningful is because 10 years later, I still need to focus my attention on a finite set of things to be effective. And also, at this point in time, people like to try to like evaluate their performance against others. You know, I'm going to my tenure is supposed to be last year. It'll be this year in June. Um, be a lot of comparison there. But the reality is um, if you play your own ball, what you end up doing is defining your own definition of success. And if you hit your definition of success, then you won, right? And, and if you try to hit somebody else's or like a universal definition of success, you almost always lose. I think that's a great takeaway. Uh, let's close out by asking kind of a two-part question here so what type of people like what's the situation where someone's ready to reach out to you as like you or your firm and then what are just some general resources someone who is just interested but not quite at that stage yet should like go and look into if they're curious and continued conversation sure if you are writing up a letter of intent to send to an owner or an offer to purchase their business we should be talking not because that not not because they're going to you're going to send it, they're going to sign it that day, and you're going to be in diligence and, oh, my gosh. But because once they sign that letter, you're going to be too inundated with too much stuff to be trying to figure out who's your diligence provider, who's going to do my quality of earnings. 
you need to know who that is. And if you select that person, they can help you with getting your letter of intent right, with helping you set your structure up well to win. If you wait till past that, and I know people want to sort of not engage until they've already kicked the tires, but I think when you engage slowly, you, you miss a lot of help. And then where are resources people can go to sort of get information? So both Harvard Business School and Stanford have great resources about, Stanford has a bunch of search fund stuff, but even self-funded business buyers can benefit from their huge volumes of, of information. And then Harvard Business School, their ETA literature and resources are amazing. And then also SMB Twitter uh, is is wild and fun and informative. There were some follows on SMB so Twitter. Those are the places I think you'd learn. There were some Say follows on SMB Twitter, one or two accounts. You know, just put in pound SMB, and it was easy. So I actually wasn't on Twitter and joined it like two months ago. And once I started putting in pound SMB, like it blew up mm. immediately. And people are way more active than I would have anticipated. It's really awesome. So Awesome. John Wilson, uh, uh, Matthew Henson, uh, Sam Rosati. Um, those are some guys. You know, you ask me a direct question, let me give you a direct answer. Nothing wrong with telling people to explore and learn on their own as well. You got them close enough. So uh, I think we'll tie it up here. Yeah, Thank you so great. much, Elliot. This has been great. Really appreciate connecting today. Sure. And then, you know, about me, you can find me at guardiandudiligence.com. All my information is there. And course i'm on twitter linkedin and if you have that letter of intent i've made it easy to contact me just go to offer from elliot.com and you can sign up for a letter of intent review with the company valuation that wraps up this conversation with elliot holland i had a great time i hope you feel the same way about it three quick takeaways for me and this time i mean it i'll make them quick first one was he's talking about kind of how his generation is better at hand-to-hand combat uh in terms of communication and our generation really isn't but i love the way he said it Just shut the phone off, close the laptop, go meet people. So many of the most interesting things in my life. And if I reflect on every important step that's happened in like my career journey, all of them came from in-person interactions and all of the dominoes that needed to fall in place for me to be where I am would not have happened if it was not for hand-to-hand combat situations where I had no phone, no computer, and was in the room with interesting people who were the decision makers that made all the difference in, in my life. So go out and do interesting things. The internet's cool, but it's not the only place that's cool. Second one, follow your own definition of success. Kind of towards the end there, we're talking about Harvard Business School and all these alumni that went on to do a variety of you know impressive things by various standards and how that can really drive you crazy when all of your peers are doing all these crazy things that are crazy. Uh, not super many variety of words I just used there. Anyway, that's not a piece of advice you haven't heard before, but it's a piece of advice you always benefit from continuing to hear because our nature is to always compare ourselves to others and make ourselves unhappy in the process. So I don't feel bad for reminding you of something you've already heard if it's good advice. Third takeaway is about the businesses that will always be useful. I really think the boring businesses have gotten more popular lately because everyone realizes that some of the stuff that isn't useful is not going to stay usefully priced, if that makes any sense, during periods of downturn or uncertainty. That's why Elliot was really excited about water and porta-potties. People are going to need to use the bathroom. They're going to need to drink water so they can use the bathroom. Really liked those thoughts. That's all I have to say for this episode. Some next steps for you, if you care to take any next steps, would be subscribe. That way you'll know about the next episode when it comes out immediately. It's pretty powerful. Say hi to us on social media. We're pretty easy to find. Lewis and Kyle online. You won't struggle with it if it's something that you want to do. And otherwise, say hi to Elliot. He's on LinkedIn most actively. That would be the place to find him. Look at Espresso Displays if you'd like to have the superpower 
of taking two screens everywhere you go. And that's all I have to say for this week. Make sure you're subscribed so you know about the next one. See you then. Bye-bye.